are entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump announces the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of the Islamic State. What does this mean for the fight in Syria against ISIS? What does it mean for Trump's foreign policy? How did the media react to this? We've got that and oh so much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Welcome, welcome. President Trump made an announcement. Please play. Last night, the United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. The United States has been searching for Baghdadi for many years. Capturing or killing Baghdadi has been the top national security priority of my administration. U.S. Special Operations Forces executed a dangerous and daring nighttime raid in northwestern Syria and accomplished their mission in grand style. The U.S. personnel were incredible. I got to watch much of it. No personnel were lost in the operation, while a large number of Baghdadi's fighters and companions were killed with him. President Trump telling the nation, telling the world, the very good news that the leader of the Islamic State is no more. These days, in our incredibly polarized political climate, There are very few moments, very few opportunities when you would expect there to be a true bipartisan coming together. But I remember, and the parallels between these two two incidents will be a theme as we discuss this today. I remember when, under the Obama administration, Osama bin Laden was killed. And I remember that announcement seeing on TV jubilant reporters seeing people dancing in the streets chanting USA USA and now understandably there was a greater psychological attachment a a greater sense of justice delivered when UBL was killed because he was the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks that killed almost 3,000 of our fellow Americans but there was an understanding that this was a good thing that justice had been delivered and There was something of a respite from the nasty partisan politics that define almost everything in the news these days. You would think, you would think that when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is taken out by U.S. special operators, people keep saying special forces, I've seen it reported as uh, Delta Force, but when this happens, shouldn't we have a pause in the partisan warfare? Shouldn't we have a moment where we say, Enough is enough with all of that. This was a good thing. First line of credit goes to our military, goes to those in the special operations community who very clearly put their lives in the line 
uh, for this raid and for many other raids and just in the day-to-day national security protection of this country. But the credit does make its way up to those who gave the order. The credit also filters through the intelligence community, which I think these days could certainly use quite a bit more public confidence and respect, given the way that it has been shamelessly politicized against President Trump. But simply put, my friends, this is a big win. It's a win for America, for Trump, for special operations, for the intelligence community, and for Syria, the Middle East, the world, human decency, basic human rights, any sense of justice. This guy was a monster. This individual was a rapist, a mass murderer, a torturer, a sadist. And yet the way that the press reported on him was such a window into what they really care about and what they really think. Astonishing stuff. Hard to believe. And I truly mean that. Over the weekend, I was at Politicon in Nashville, which was a fun event. It was mostly fun for me to see some members of Team Buck who showed up. And thank you so much for those of you who did, uh, but also to see some of my media peers. I have to tell you, this headline, which has gotten so much attention from the Washington Post, was so bizarre, so amoral, and just, it's hard to explain how anyone could think this way, but the Washington Post initially called Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi a terrorist in chief. I responded on Twitter yesterday to this uh, because they changed that headline to the following, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, austere religious scholar at helm of Islamic State, dies at 48. Uh, yeah, austere. You could say he was pretty strict. You know, he, he would, you know, saw your head off if you didn't do what he wanted. So I guess that's, I guess that's one description of him, austere religious scholar. Now, the Post had to walk this back, change the headline right away. But that was not the only place, I would note, where there were very strange descriptions in what was a Washington Post obituary of a butcher of men, women, and children in the Middle East, doing so under the mantle of Islam, bringing tens of thousands of recruits, okay? This isn't, I know in this country, if if you have a, a white nationalist rally somewhere with 10 morons who show up, we're told that they're about to overthrow the country. Meanwhile, when you're looking at the Islamic State, you actually had a jihadist who brought together tens of thousands of recruits from all over the world took over an area that reigned over at least three or four million inhabitants and required a multinational coalition led, of course, by the United States, but also with some very good ground fighting from our friends, the Kurds, uh, on the ground. Uh, But as terrible a human being as you're going to find anywhere. And the Washington Post, in its obituary of this uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, referred to him, wrote, quote, Mr. Baghdadi maintained a canny pragmatism, end quote. Hmm. I guess enslavement, genocide, mass murder. Some people would find a way to describe that as pragmatic. If you're a psychopath. Another quote from the obituary, acquaintances would remember him as a shy, nearsighted youth who liked soccer but preferred to spend his free time at the local mosque. Now, 
end quote. You could tell me that, Buck, come on, they're doing an obituary. They're trying to give a full picture of who this monster was. They understand that. As I read through this obituary, I could not help but think that if they were writing an obituary, if the Washington Post is writing an obituary of, say, Brett Kavanaugh, there would have been more acid-tongued attacks. There would have been more nasty, undermining viciousness about a future Kavanaugh obituary, for example, than you would see in this piece about a mass murderer. Not about an entirely decent and brilliant family man who is the worst nightmare of liberals precisely because of his intellect, his morality, and his decency. No, no. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, they can find another way to look at him. If you think that that's the only case, by the way, I would bring you the way that Bloomberg, another major news outlet, you know, multi-billion dollars, these are huge news outlets, employing thousands of journalists, tremendous resources. How about just terrorist mastermind killed? Congrats, special forces or special operations. Uh, congrats, U.S. military and the Trump White House. Sorry, they get credit for this. The same way that Obama did his whole walk out in front of the microphone and look what I did. Bin Laden's gone. I'm amazing. Now, that covered up for a tremendous amount of incompetence in the counterterrorism fight from the Obama administration. In fact, it was reported that some of the SEALs that were a part of that raid on Bin Laden's compound said afterwards, we just got Obama reelected. By taking out Osama. And I think that there was some degree of truth to that. I don't think it was wholly the case that that was why Obama got reelected. But a major line of attack on foreign policy matters would have been the ineptitude and the inability of the Obama administration to even see who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. It was a way to shut down that criticism at a key moment for the Obama administration. They shut it down by saying, oh, I'm sorry. Obama, the guy who killed bin Laden, isn't tough enough on terrorists? Well, no, actually, turned out he wasn't tough enough on terrorists. Do you remember all the mass casualty attacks that were happening abroad and here at home? Jihadist attacks inspired by the Islamic State? No, I don't think he was tough enough on uh, terrorism. They always pointed also to his usage of drones. Well, that was because we were, we were being told that drones were a precision tactic and that that was all that was needed. Of course, that wasn't all that was needed. Drones are not a strategy, and drones come with their own collateral damage and, and issues. But Bloomberg tweeted out the following about Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi transformed himself from a little-known teacher of Quranic recitation into the self-proclaimed ruler of an entity that covered swaths of Syria and Iraq. Wow. I wonder what his favorite color was. Did he have a cat? What was the cat's name? This is how they talk about... As vicious a terrorist mastermind as you would find anywhere. As vicious as bin Laden just didn't manage to get in a sneak attack on us before we knew we were at war. But as vicious as Osama bin Laden. In fact, the Islamic State used tactics that were so severe, so extreme, that there were even Al-Qaeda members who reportedly felt that it might be too much. It might turn some members of the Ummah, the Islamic community, against the Islamic State. And yet here we have... Reporters in, in more than one instance and also and I'm about to get into the this is just the way they report on Baghdadi. I will transfer this into how did they factor Trump into all this and then we'll discuss what does this mean about Syria? Wasn't it just a week ago we were being told that 
Trump had no idea what he was doing in Syria. He's ruined everything. He's left all the Kurds to die. The whole region's up in flames now because of Trump. All this hysteria from so-called foreign policy experts. I would note my, my dear friends and colleagues here in the Freedom Hut with me. Did we take that position? Were we in hysterics about how the counterterrorism fight is over because of Trump's decision? How everything has fallen apart? We've lost all of our gains. We've abandoned the Kurds for all eternity. We've handed over all of our credibility to the Turks and the Russians. Were we taking that position? Who looks foolish this week? Not us. Not in here. A lot of other people, though. Perhaps it's because some of us actually worked on these issues and have an understanding of the underlying dynamics and also have some interest in the history, not just of the region, but of U.S. actions in the region and what comes as a result of them in the immediate and long term. Make no mistake about it. This was a big win for America, for civilization, really. It does not end the fight against terrorism. It does not even end the fight against the Islamic State. But it is an important moral and psychological victory in a battle that is largely moral and psychological. But the media wasn't really necessarily sure what team they were on sometimes, were they? How do we report on this? Don't want this to be too much of a win for Trump. Let's focus on that for a moment. How, how does Trump factor in to what is the single biggest takeout of a terrorist since bin Laden and is certainly on the same plane as the mission against Osama bin Laden? But what do they think of Trump in this whole thing? Baghdadi and the losers who worked for him and losers they are. They had no idea what they were getting into. In some cases, they were very frightened puppies. In other cases, they were hardcore killers. President Trump minced no words when he was talking about the operation against Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And also, the, we, we, I'll refer to him as al-Baghdadi. Of course, that means the guy from Baghdad. It's not, not really... Uh, his, his name, so to speak, but it's really a, a, a place name that he took as part of his, uh, his nom de guerre. But Baghdadi did not die well. And the president had no problem telling the entire world about this. Producer Mark, please play uh, clip 10 where the president gives some specifics about this. He died after running into a dead end tunnel, whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. Whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. I believe he also went on to say that he died like a, like a, oh, here we go. Play 13. He did say. One who has caused so much hardship and death. A brutal killer. One who has caused so much hardship and death has violently been eliminated. He will never again harm another innocent man, woman, or child. He died like a dog. He died like a coward. The world is now a much safer place. Died like a dog, the president said. This then resulted in the usual people coming out of the, out of the woodwork to say that this was a bad idea, that there should not be uh, this kind of spiking of the football. And in fact, I saw some supposed national security experts saying that in comparison to what happened with bin Laden, this is far, uh, there are far too many details that are being shared. This was a pathetic criticism that was initially, because the, the, the first impulse of many people in the media 
was not, oh, well, this thing happened. What does this mean for Syria and for the region and for America? The first impulse is, oh, no, this is a Trump win. How do we make it seem like not as much of a Trump win? It is clear from the way it was reported. It's clear from the analysis pieces as well as the hard news. The first concern of American journalists writing about this, by and large, was to make sure that Trump did not get a big win out of this, that also there wasn't a sense of whiplash in the public from, Trump has ruined our Syria policy. Oh, wait, he just called for the mission to get rid of the head of the Islamic State. What do we do now? How do we spin that now? Primary concern. This is why people don't trust the press, why they don't trust the media, because they should not trust the press. They should not trust the media. They show you who they are time and again. As Bush once said, fool me once, can't, can't get fooled again. You know, that's how Bush said it. I kind of like the way he said it. I also think that his usage of the term decider uh, was, was excellent. And then there was, what was the word that he, he made up a word and it was a great word and I'm forgetting what it was now. Misunderestimated. He was misunderestimated. That is for sure. Uh, the truth here is that President Trump does get credit, should get credit from any fair-minded press and any fair-minded American, but there's a desperate attempt to make it seem like this is something other than that. The comparison to the bin Laden raid that I've seen many in the media making is interesting because they say Trump gave away too many details. Trump gave away too many details of this raid? The bin Laden raid, there were orders from the Obama administration to basically just sit down and like open up the books and tell the Zero Dark Thirty filmmakers whatever they wanted to know. People were writing books about the whole thing. I mean, that was was leaking like a, it wasn't even leaks. They were they were told to do it, just sharing all the information. He was a sick and depraved man, and now he's gone. Baghdadi was vicious and violent, and he died in a vicious and violent way as a coward running and crying. Now, people are claiming as well that there's the secrecy complaint. They were all that you could almost line them up right away after this, within hours of this, within minutes of this raid, which any normal person would react to with, wow, that's that's great work by the military intelligence community and good call President Trump. That That's really it. Maybe start chanting USA on the streets or wherever you are if you want. But that's the way normal people react. Instead, the way the press reacts is to sort of try to be fair to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and be as unfair as possible to President Trump in terms of the credit that he would get in this circumstance. There were complaints about secrecy around this, that the president isn't allowed to talk about the, the raid. Well, well, the raid already happened. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's dead. They're announcing that the raid happened. Trump wasn't giving away any tactics, techniques, or procedures. Trump wasn't giving away anything that would help the enemy next time. I heard the press conference. He's saying, yeah, they chased him down a tunnel. Guess what? The bad guys know Abu Bakr is dead. They sent a big detachment of special operations to go get him. This is not some that that once it's happened, it's not doesn't remain some big secret. You know, we're not trying to hide this from ISIS. They are well aware of it. But another criticism that I thought was just so clear in its desperation, the desperation of preventing a full benefit, political benefit for President Trump out of this whole situation was that we, they, well, there was a lack of respect, a lack of respect that Trump showed by the way he talked about this. And I even saw, I think it was the former, and I, I worked for Morrell at the, at the CIA, the former deputy director there. 
I remember, I think he was one that went on CBS and said, you know, that, that there was such an effort to be respectful to bin Laden and they gave him an Islamic burial. Um, okay, that's one way to see it. There's also the, they blew his head off, took photos of him, and then dumped his body in the ocean. So there's that. I'm not sure that there's any jihadist who's going to say, whoa, they were really, first of all, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi suicided himself with a suicide vest. We didn't get into that detail yet. Killed three of his own children, reportedly. Ran into a tunnel, brought kids with him. It's going to be it's going to be tough for him when he wakes up uh, after his so-called martyrdom. And there's there's no virgins. There's something else waiting for him on the other side. I can assure you of that. But the complaints about this, like we weren't as we weren't as gentle or as as gentlemanly, I should say, with Abu Bakr because Trump is in charge as he were with bin Laden. Uh, the seals blew blew a hole in bin Laden's head and then. The military dumped his body at sea after what was reportedly a brief, you know, Islamic ritual. Um, not not exactly a, a, a warm and fuzzy situation as it shouldn't have been. Right? They went in, they killed this guy. I mean, you know, war is hell. He's not even a warrior. He's a terrorist. End of story. What's the big problem here? But they, uh, they were looking. They were looking for ways, looking for things to say, anything that could convince the general public. Or, or really just that would feed the mania of Democrats and anti-Trumpers out there that it's not possible for Trump to do anything that's really good. And that's what you saw from the press here. There must be, even when Trump, sometimes we'll make jokes about how if Trump were to cure cancer, you know, if Trump came out and said, hey, my administration working with the CDC and private researchers, we have cured all cancer. We joke around and we're not even really that much joking these days. We joke around that there would be think pieces on Vox.com of, you know, why cancer has an important Darwinian role. I mean, there would be crazy stuff because anything Trump does can't be good. So you have to find some way, you know, some way to, to frame it so that Trump is the worst person in history is still the takeaway for that audience. And that was happening even with this, even in this moment of of time um it's it's sad to see this and it was particularly sad that it it wasn't just the press now washington dc where i used to live i've lived i've lived a good chunk of my life in washington dc so i know the swamp very well i know the swamp creatures far too well and dc because it is largely now the population of dc is an appendage of federal government largesse They are there, generally speaking, because of all of the money, the consolidation of power and money in our federal capital. This is not what the founders had in mind. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But unfortunately, there's a reason why I think it might even be seven of the top 10 wealthiest counties per capita in the United States. Just ring Washington, D.C. And you got to go out in the suburbs to get your multimillion dollar mansion if you're a contractor or lobbyist or someone whose real job is, is essentially influence peddling inside the Beltway. But over 94%, I think it was, it's definitely over 90, I think it was over 94%, might have even been 96% of Washington, D.C. voters went for Hillary Clinton in the last election who worked for the federal government. So if you work for the federal government and you were living in Washington, D.C., 
you went for Hillary. D.C. is a political monoculture for the permanent state, not just for the deep state, but the permanent state, the bureaucracy. And you got a sense of that when last night President Trump was at, and producer Mark, fortunately, likes baseball. So he, he had to tell me that there was this World Series going on, and apparently the D.C. team is in it. The Nats, which sounds like a bunch of small flies. Do you not even know the name of the Washington team? Yeah, the Nationals. No, no, I'm I'm, I'm hip. I know the things. Oh, okay. But but there was this moment last night when the President of the United States is at a baseball game right after the the announcement of, or within hours of the announcement that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has been killed by our elite military. And this is how people in our nation's capital... Some of them, at least, responded. Play clip uh, 18, please. There was booing. There were people there chanting, lock him up about the president of the United States. Now, it goes without saying these people are childish and they're morons. But unfortunately, they're all over D.C. and they think they're really wise and superior intellectually. They think that they're the ones they think they're moral too. they're better than the people that would at least give the president his due over what just happened in Syria. Oh, and if, if that so that that's disturbing, it's upsetting, but it's not surprising. It's not surprising. And can you imagine what the response would have been if the same day of the UBL raid? You had had a big chunk of a sports stadium chanting, lock him up or, you know, send him to prison or just booing Barack Obama. Can you imagine what the press reaction would be? This is just supposed to take it in stride. You know, Americans booing their president on a day like that. I guess they they have very little recollection, it seems, of the torture videos, the electrocutions, the head chopping uh, decapitations, just the the cruelty, the cruelty within the Islamic State that was a clarion call to tens of thousands of people in the Islamic world. Some very interesting questions still to be answered about how that happens, how within a religious tradition there are that many people who when they hear that there's someone who's raping women, raping in some cases small children, as the Islamic State was also doing, uh, there was rampant pedophilia among some of the uh, senior leadership, you know, uh, underage girls. Right? The, the atrocities that were committed by the Islamic State are horrific beyond words. And yet there are people rushing from around the world to join them. In some cases from European countries, from our own country. Join this group. Be a part of this group. no. That Abu Bakr was chased into a corner and blew himself up while killing three of his own children is a fitting end to a group that is beyond and beneath contempt. And we can't focus on that enemy together as a country. We have to have the elites sneering at Trump. We have to have people in the press telling us that this wasn't such a great thing that Trump did because of X, Y, or Z. This is pathetic. These people are sick. The press I'm talking about now, you know, the austere scholar Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi brought together, as Bloomberg says, you know, this whole area under his Quranic recitations. Wow. 
I guess they're kind of impressed by him. And yet we know how they would respond, how they have responded to what should be a moment of true bipartisan unity because they can't, they can't see beyond anything other than their Trump hatred. Uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, these places have destroyed themselves. To anybody who has open eyes and any sense of judgment whatsoever, those organizations have made a mockery of themselves now. And they're doing harm to the country. They're not telling the truth. They're not truth tellers. They are lying about their partisanship and inflicting a very shockingly uh, brazen propaganda on the American people on a day-to-day basis, even in moments like this. What does this mean for the Islamic State? I mean, let me, I don't want to do too much of just the how Trump derangement syndrome affected this because it, it certainly did. It affected the way the media and many people across the country saw this event. What is the truth of what happens now in the Islamic State? And also, I want to get into a bit of what this means for Syria policy. The operation was conducted last night. Uh, the president approved a raid onto the target. Uh, the aim was to capture uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And if we couldn't capture him, uh, then, of course, we were going to kill him. And uh, like I said, the raid was successful. Uh, we pulled our troops out. We had two minor injuries to uh, our soldiers, but a very successful, flawless raid. Now we get into the discussion we've had many times before. In fact, it's the discussion that I know a bit about, having been at the uh, CIA during the takeout of numerous high-value targets in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, what does this mean for the fight against the Islamic State? What does it mean for the insurgency campaign that is currently being waged or, or counterterrorism operations. These are largely one and the same in Syria. The truth is we don't know. You don't know until after it happens. One of the best parts of this, if you're looking at it from a tactical and operational perspective, uh, the best part of it is that there is a, other than the psychological benefits and the sense of justice, now as we look at what happened, uh, we also have the information exploitation that occurs. They were able to seize, no doubt, a lot of sensitive documents. Who knows who they may have been able to, who they may be able to track down as a result of this. Um, there's been all this focus on how they managed to track Baghdadi down in the first place. People find that interesting. I find much more, yeah, they, they took out a courier and they managed to, to track him. And it was just good intelligence work, which is really investigative work. You know, the difference between fighting, uh, finding rather a, a terrorist hiding in Idlib in northwest Syria and finding a, you know, a, a cartel leader in the highlands of Mexico, is, it's, it's really quite similar. You use the tools you have to try and get, get a, a positive ID on where the subject may be. You try to track them down. You have to then bring uh, kinetic efforts to bear to actually grab them or take them out. So it's really investigative work. That, that part of it is, it's, from what we know right now, seems to be pretty textbook. They found some people that were close enough to him. They then tracked down his location. They knew where he would be. The reports are that he didn't move for a while. They were hoping to catch him on the move because this raid was going to be dangerous. There were going to be a lot of fighters around trying to defend him. I haven't seen the casualty figures for the other side yet, but I can assume that our special operators went in at night and were taking out a lot of guys before they even got close to Baghdadi. Um, there is a part of me that wishes that one of ours, one of ours had been able to take the final shot like they did with bin Laden, but I suppose we have to be content with Baghdadi uh, obliterating himself, um, leaving, him, leaving him 
also casualties of his own children in the process. I mean, it really tells you what a psychopath you're dealing with here. Um, and also the, the need for fundamentalist Islamic belief uh, for a jihadist in this process. How could a person do this unless they believe that they had some celestial justification for it? It just defies any reason or logic. You're going to bring your three kids with you and blow them up? But what does it mean for fighting the Islamic State? They've already talked about the person who will be uh, taking over. Um, they have this this new leader. And this is another way. This is Look, this is a legitimate way, but another way of taking the focus off the raid initially. Abdullah Kardash, uh, who's also known as Haji Abdullah Alafari, was nominated, they say, back in August to run the Islamic State. So how much of the day-to-day was Baghdadi really running we don't know, or at least we in the public don't necessarily know, um, but there is now this Kardash fellow who could be, he could be every bit as, as evil, could be even perhaps more capable as a terrorist leader. We'll have to see. I do recall that after the death, again, because of special operators and some very good work in Iraq, of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, you had an escalation of the violence in Iraq and the insurgency and things got substantially worse from a security standpoint. So just killing Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was not the, oh, the head of the snake has been cut off, therefore the rest of the body is not a danger. You have to think of insurgency and even HVTs or high-value targets. It's like you're dealing with a, a hydra. Remember the creature from Greek mythology with many, many different heads to it? Still useful to chop off a hydra's head, but you got to chop off a lot of them. And you still have to deal with the body. That's a, perhaps a, a better way to consider what has happened here. Uh, the Islamic State is clearly under a lot of pressure because of the campaign that the Trump administration has waged since he came into office, which he also does not get sufficient as commander in chief. He does not get sufficient credit for that decision making. Right? The credit for the raids, the credit for the, va- the credit for valor and bravery always goes to our military. That's one component of all this. That's just period, full stop. The credit for decision-making, if we're going to talk about that, strategy, decision-making, command and responsibility, that goes to the people that are making those high-level calls. And in this case, that's President Trump. And as much as they may try to muddy the waters, make that not as clear, they can't change the fact that it is because of a Trump administration decision that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi no longer walks the earth today. But there's a broader piece here about foreign policy, too. What does this mean when we are always being told that President Trump is incompetent, he's endangering the world, he doesn't know what he's doing? He knew what he was doing here. Where else does he know? The reality is we've walked away from the Kurds right at the time where they were giving us intelligence that apparently was key to this operational victory, according to them. And what my sources are telling me is that takes the counterterrorism pressure off ISIS and that risks an ISIS resurgence. And so this may be, as you said, an operational tactical victory, but strategically, Donald Trump has set the fight against ISIS back significantly. Notice how Trump can't get credit for this, according to the press. You cannot say that President Trump made the right call, did the right thing. They won't, they won't concede it. Their sense of patriotism, as weak as it may be, their sense of duty and honor, n- none of that overcomes the hashtag resistance mentality. Much more important to them to bash Trump than to give credit where it is due. It's one of the reasons why I always tell you I give credit where it's due on this show. Democrat does something good, I say, good job, Democrat. I don't run around pretending that everything a Democrat says or does is bad. In fact, I, I like finding things that Democrats do 
that is praiseworthy because it is a reminder that Democrats don't have to be crazy. Some of them aren't. Democrats don't have to be hashtag resistance lunatics. Many of them choose to be normal people. We would like to bring them over to our side of, of thinking. That would be far better. I do want converts. I don't just want converts to this show. I want converts to cons- uh, conservatism. But start off with converts to this show. So tell your liberal friends. Be like, hey, listen to this guy. Maybe he'll get you to stop seeing the world the wrong way. Uh, New York Times also went around. And that was Ken Delaney at MSNBC who started out. Ken Delaney was also a big proponent of the Russia collusion hoax which was a hoax. We can say that it's a hoax. There was no Russia collusion. So the the hoax word is, I think, a very useful one. Uh, the death of, this is from the New York Times. I mean, how many of these, these are the biggest liberal news outlets in the world. Jake Tapper had more important things to do than cover the president's full speech and Q&A afterwards. Cut away from it. So he could tell us what he thinks about the events because he's very serious journalist. Mm, yeah. Uh, the death, this is from the New York Times, the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the Islamic State leader, happened largely in spite of President Trump's, act, uh, tre- President Trump's actions, not because of them, according to military intelligence and counterterrorism officials. What does that really mean? How? How is that the case? I- I'd like an explanation of that. I'd like them to tell us why other than just finding people who can claim the title of military intelligence and counterterrorism official yeah government employees basically finding government employees who hate trump not hard to do finding people that also would rather believe that trump just got lucky or this had nothing to do or it happened in spite of him you know what did happen in spite of the bin laden raid happened in spite of joe biden's opposition to it but you won't hear much press coverage of that one joe biden in one of his Moments of unintentional honesty. He was like, yeah, I just didn't think we should do that raid. Good job, Joe. We'll get to Biden later on in the show. Uh, but it happened in spite of Not only does Trump not get the credit, Trump should be blamed, you see. The media wants you to blame Trump. Because if it were up to him, this wouldn't have happened. Well, I guess we should just be happy the press thinks it's good that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is gone. That's... Something of a, of, a, of a victory for us, I suppose, for, for sanity. Uh, but there's a broader question here, and this ties into the sources that are speaking out against President Trump uh, and, and what's happened here in this raid. Because more broadly, foreign policy was supposed to be the realm where Trump was out of his depth. We have been told from day one that Trump is in. This is what the media and the intelligentsia and a lot of former government officials, they have been telling us that Trump has no curiosity about the world, no understanding about the world, doesn't read any books, doesn't know anything about anything. And therefore, we should not support him because he's going to do all these terrible things that will harm our national security. I've, I've heard so much criticism of Trump harming our national security. And I look around and say, where has it been harmed exactly? Other than in these rhetorical terms of, oh, the perception of us in the world, this is just all propaganda. This is all just, uh, this is bloviating. This is opinions. This is pomposity dressed up as analysis. Well, what is this? No, Trump has made the country less safe. How? By doing what? Oh, and where have we taken 
thousands of casualties because of a stupid decision that Trump has made. Hmm. Where have we enmeshed ourselves much more deeply in a war that we had no strategic vision to complete? I, I think the answer is we, we, they never give us any specifics on this because it hasn't happened. You cannot look at the first four years of Trump or Bush's, for, I'm sorry, of Trump's foreign policy and compare it to Obama or Bush and not come away thinking, this Trump guy has got some good ideas. He's actually uh, making some things happen. And this is where you get to the egos involved in the Trump opposition, which is a beyond just the, the hard left. This is beyond just the progressive Democrats and, and socialists running around who despise Trump because he's not woke, because he's you know, a vulgarian who doesn't speak about the 37 genders and you know, all, all the rest of it. Uh, there are a lot of other people. And this is where you get uh, folks like uh, Bill Taylor, for example, who testified recently as a State Department guy saying that his perception of Trump with Ukraine and the quid pro quo. Yeah, the guy's a lifelong uh, diplomat. Has he been right? Has it really has it really mattered all that much? Is all of this State Department uh, puffing up of puffing up of itself all the time really worthwhile? Do we need a State Department that's nearly as big as we do? Are, are these bureaucrats worth the federal government as important as they like to think they are? And their expertise. We always hear about their expertise. I can tell you this. I have a few people in my life who are just very, they're voracious readers. And they read a lot of stuff and they read a lot of stuff in the newspaper, a lot of journals and books. And they are as knowledgeable about foreign policy as anybody I know from the State Department. And then some. All right, so this starts to fall also into this cult of expertise notion that Trump is outside that circle. But what are what are the people inside the cult, the intelligentsia on foreign policy? What are they to make of themselves when this guy who's like a reality TV star who's, you know, tweeting at people like a like a crazy man sometimes? And I say that with love, but he does. And, you know. What are they to make of the fact that he understands at a gut level things that they don't? He has a more realistic understanding of some aspects, not just of how domestic policy works, but foreign policy works. Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? How do you handle bad guys? Oh, a lot of brilliant diplomats will tell you how to handle Kim Jong-un, for example, in North Korea. Do they know? What's their what's their record of success like exactly? Oh, that's right. It's a, it's a record of decades of bipartisan failure. And what, what about on China? Oh, Trump's an idiot. He doesn't know anything. He's starting this trade war with China. Where's the, where's the record of success from previous administrations getting China to stop ripping us off, stealing our intellectual property, uh, engaging in predatory trade practices? Well, who's been able to do? They didn't even think it was a problem before. At least they weren't able to stand up to it and deal with it as a problem. So where does that leave us? What are we really to think about all of this when the president of the United States is not just presiding? Oh, S&P 500 is uh, at like an all-time high, I think, today. Stock market's still booming. Household income up, taxes down. The debt's a problem. I will not let it go. Almost a trillion dollars, unacceptable. But there's a lot of other stuff you look at, and that gets no attention whatsoever. No focus on the things that are going on in, in, in Trump's 
White House and and what that means for the rest of America. No, we're just we're told these things by people who are convinced they're right and are desperate, desperate to convince the rest of the American people that Trump is just oh so wrong, has no idea what he's doing, is way out of his depth. Where's the evidence for that? Stop giving me anonymous sources, which is what we have here. Sources in the government say, yeah, like Brennan worked for the government. Brennan was CIA director. I wouldn't trust that guy to tell me about anything. Guy was a former commie, legitimately, like a communist. This is like, you know, people listen to Bernie Sanders. Oh, I've got to tell you, I I had some some moments over the weekend. I was debating, I'll get into that, the debate that we had at Politicon over healthcare, which I think is probably online, you can watch it, but just Looney Tunes kind of stuff. I mean, just people saying crazy things. But on foreign policy, this is where the smart people were supposed to sneer at Trump and be right. He doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. And the Obama people, right, the Obama White House and the the various senior advisors who are now treated like they're giving a sage commentary on the rest of the world. They they would always point to, well, you know, look at the bin Laden raid. Oh, you mean the like sort of like the Baghdadi raid where Trump had. Elite operators moving through multiple tiers of enemy airspace. Really, it's it's airspace controlled by the Syrians and the Russians. You've also got to con- be concerned about the Turks in this re- region. Had to deconflict with them. There were people, just so you know how crazy the press release, there were people who were saying, oh, see, he coordinated with the Russians. Putin's puppet. Oh, yeah, maybe he's Putin's puppet. Or maybe those journals should know that flying a bunch of U.S. air, air assets into someone else's airspace without telling them when they have advanced surface-to-air defense systems like the Russians do, as well as their own planes and helicopters that could be countermeasures. Maybe we just didn't want to get our guys blown out of the sky by the Russians. To not deconflict with the Russians beforehand would have been suicidal, would have been insane. And yet doing that very basic step is pointed to as further evidence of Trump is Putin's puppet. Trump's a bad guy. Can't trust Trump. Can't trust him. Even when he's ordering this raid. The Obama foreign policy, I can point to places all over the world and say, got worse, got worse. Afghanistan, worse. Iraq, worse. Syria, worse. Libya, worse. Egypt, worse. Give me a country that mattered in terms of U.S. foreign policy where there were problems, and I will tell you, under the Obama administration, and I'll point to it and say, oh yeah, you mean the one that got dramatically worse while Obama's team was running things? Look at who was in charge. Would you rather have Susan Rice, who called Lindsey Graham a piece of blank recently, publicly, would you rather have Susan Rice uh, making decisions or Pompeo making decisions about foreign policy? Would you rather have Hillary Clinton making foreign policy decisions? I, I, I certainly hope not. Yet here we are. And this is what we are dealing with. Um, it was uh, it was disgraceful the way the press reacted to this. But as we know, it's all about narrative. And the narrative has to be that Trump's foreign policy is bad. And this can't be used the way that it was used very effectively, I might add, to create a false perception that Obama's foreign policy was competent because it was not. They don't want that to happen now because Trump's foreign policy so far has been competent. And now he has this counterterrorism success. They're terrified about what this means for 2020. What's the foreign policy criticism going to be? 
Oh, NATO? Trump is too rough with NATO, and so he's going to break up the alliance? That's false. NATO allies are now paying more money than they did before Trump. All Trump has done is hold them to account for their promises or for their targets, the goals that they've set for themselves. NATO alliance about to break up. But what matters is just the narrative. These people are just, you know, the left, I got used to having a government apparatus for eight years of the Obama administration that was more or less always reflecting something other than my view on on policy matters. And I said, all right, well, we're out of power right now. We got to make the case and we got to. I didn't wake up every day in some kind of a, a cold sweat freaking out about how we can't survive another administration, another Obama administration. No. They really think that about Trump. And if you really believe that, what are you unwilling to do and say? The press completely embarrassed themselves. I mean, these these legacy media outlets, they really should just slowly go away. I mean, that would be the that I'm hoping the market does that to them. Well, they have so much money behind them. It takes a while for them to really you know, the New York Times would already be bankrupt if it hadn't gotten a billionaire. The Washington Post would already be bankrupt if it hadn't had a billionaire backing. I mean, these these legacy media outlets are now largely turning into um, artistic projects for liberal billionaires. That's really what they're that's really what's going on. Oh, and also, you don't want to mess with somebody who's got a massive newspaper. To, you know, don't don't pick fights with somebody who buys ink by the barrel, so to speak, or in this case, employs a whole bunch of people to write stuff online. Team, just a quick note. Welcome back to Buck Saxton Show. You know, when President Trump said that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, you know, died like a dog, and he kind of said it like that, it really, it reminded me of something. I'm wondering who among you will uh, will know this line right out. Because there's a part of me that feels like maybe Trump, I'm sure he's seen this movie. Is it possible that Trump got this from the movie? Producer Mark, would you please play... Uh, well, I don't want to say what it is. We'll see if people can pick it out before I tell them. Play, play the clip. You know the one I mean. I told you about the night he killed your parents. He said your father begged for mercy. Begged. Like a dog. Like a dog. I mean, he said it just like Trump said it. Just like Trump. Now, I know it may, maybe say it's a common phrase, but I mean, how many of you have ever heard a line from a movie and and maybe just sort of said it later without thinking about it. I'm not I'm not saying this is you know don't don't tell me this is fake news. I can't prove this, but it just it, it, when Trump gave his initial speech, I was like that sounds a little bit like who guessed it, Falcone the gangster talking to Bruce Wayne in Batman Begins, like a dog, and then of course Falcone gets his uh, his come up and later on. Um, so I I was at. Uh, at Politicon over the weekend. I did get to see some of you who listen to the show, which I really do appreciate. I have to tell you, Nashville is a great town. I got nothing. Nashville's fantastic, and I knew it would be. That's why I really want to get to... I keep saying I want to get to Austin. That's top of my list. I really want to get to Austin soon. KLBJ in the house. It's our radio affiliate down in Austin. Um, I really want to get down there. I ate barbecue in Nashville. It was delicious. Uh, the food was amazing. The people are awesome. The music scene's fantastic. And there's such a vibrancy to that city now because it's growing so fast. There's Someone told me there are 40 construction cranes now going in downtown, building all these towers. And Anyway, Austin, I mean, uh, Austin, Nashville was a, was a great town. I really enjoyed it. And I'll get into some of what I saw at Politicon in a second, but I want to tell you, single best thing at Politicon for me, uh, single coolest moment by far, was someone who listens to the show, so someone from Team Buck, who's a member of the special operations community, 
came up and told me that uh, when he was, let's just say, engaged in anti-ISIS operations, um, his guys were listening to this show. And I thought that was so cool. And I appreciated it so much. And he said that, you know, they really, they like that I have familiarity with what I'm talking about. I've, I've experienced being in some of these places, trying to help the warfighter as a, as a civilian intelligence analyst. Uh, but there is no greater compliment that I can, I can have than to be talking about issues of, uh, well, the fight of what was called the war on terror and have the actual warfighters rolling around. And I, I don't want to say where or how, but rolling around uh, listening to this show, listening to this show on, on podcast and, and appreciating what we do here and, and feeling like I'm representing their perspective and, and what they're doing well enough that they, they respect this show and they listen to this show. So thank you, sir. I won't, I won't name you on here, but thank you for coming up and, and sharing that with me. And uh, it really made my weekend that guys from the special operations community involved in the anti-ISIS fight like the Buck Sexton show. Today in America, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, half of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. And Rashida took me around her district here in Detroit. And I met with beautiful young people who are going to schools in which they don't have adequate textbooks. They are going to schools where their teachers are forced to work two or three jobs just to make a living. I don't think it is too much to ask that in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, we pay our teachers a living salary. Bernie Sanders is just a socialist. I know we're always supposed to say he's a democratic socialist. He's a socialist. So let, let's start from the real core of his belief system. Yes, he believes in the process of voting, the, the democratic process of voting. He believes in also the imposition of socialism by the state. That your work, your time, your hours, part of your life that you are devoting to be productive, he can take any amount of that away from you he wants because it's the right thing to do. Because you're too rich, people live in paycheck to paycheck. It's not fair. It's not, it's not right. And the richest country, the richest country in the world should not have teachers with five jobs or 10 jobs. I mean, I know he said two or three. First of all, teachers, every teacher that I know pretty much has at least more than one job because, yeah, they have three months off in the summer. And please, I know this is uh, some teachers get mad at me. Don't give me this like, oh, but we're just working on lesson plans the whole time. I know some teachers. I've been on some dates with some teachers. I know what really goes on, all right? Don't give me this, like, oh, we're just, all we do is our teachers are working more than investment bankers. No. Some might, and congratulations, but most don't. In fact, most public school teachers are in, and this is not their fault, although many of them are very supportive of the unions that make this the case, they're in what is really, a first and foremost, a jobs program for adults, because that's what the public school system in this country is. It's not really about the children, it's not really about the education. But this was a perfect Bernie Sanders moment here because he said a whole bunch of things 
that would not withstand much scrutiny at all, but gets the crowd to go, boo, we don't like the rich people. They're taking too much. If they had less, you'd have more. That's the basis of the whole Bernie ideology. If they have less, you'll have more. Doesn't work that way. Paycheck to paycheck. I lived paycheck to paycheck for the first, out of college, at least the first decade of my life. 10 years working paycheck to paycheck. I mean, I was, you know, one uh, uncovered visit from a doctor or, you know, one away from like living on credit cards for about the first decade I was running around. Um, and, and I know what it's like to have worked for many years and go to the ATM machine. I think I was 28 or 29 years old. I remember I went to the ATM machine and I had, you know, what, what a lot of Americans have, which is that they'd have trouble paying for a $500 uh, emergency. I went to the ATM. I'd been working for years, working with the government, but I'd moved to New York. I was trying to apply to uh, graduate school and um, had cashed out my 401k, which is a terrible idea, but you got to do what you got to do. Don't do that, by the way. Go deliver pizzas, work as a burrito, whatever you got. Don't cash out your 401k. You're just putting yourself in a, you know, a more difficult position to catch up later on. Uh, so don't do as I did with that one. But I know what it is to go to an ATM machine and have less than $1,000 in the bank. And you've been working for years, years. But, you know, things are expensive and you got to pay for things. And uh, I was not making much money when I started the federal government. I was not making much money during my time at the NYPD. I mean, I was a government employee. So I understand this, this concern. I mean, economic anxiety is very real and we all have it. I mean, the truth is that absolute financial security doesn't really exist. It exists for very few people. And even those people are always worried about not being as rich. You know, look at how, how anxious many hundred millionaire and billionaires get the millionaires, the billion, the hundred millionaires. That's what Bernie has to separate out and do. Cause he's just a, he's just a lowly, like 10 millionaire or something. He's not a hundred millionaire. There's too much money. Uh, but look at the way that they get wound up and anxious about the prospect of becoming slightly less incredibly rich. It worries them. They don't like that idea. Uh, sure, some of them take this giving pledge. They're going to give away a lot of their money, but a lot of them don't. Most of them don't. But paycheck to paycheck, that is a situation that you make better how? How do you make it better? You make it better by taxing people more and having there be less opportunity for jobs and wage growth for the people that are working? That's not going to do it. That's not going to do it very well. Uh, then you also had him say that the schools don't have textbooks and teachers are poor. Um, I know of many teachers at schools here in New York City who will, I shouldn't say many teachers. I have spoken to several teachers at schools here in New York City that are uh, schools that are almost entirely minority and um, not high income background. They're generally low income minority students or the entirety or almost the entirety of the student body. The problem is not resources. The problem is not inadequate textbooks. All right, if we're really going to talk about education, that's a whole other discussion, but there's plenty of, there's brand new computers in the classrooms. Uh, the classrooms all look great. There's tons of money that's being funneled into the public school system in places like New York and D.C. I've been in, I was in a very poor years ago, very poor uh, in terms of the students uh, per capita income of their households, uh, poor school in D.C. And all the classrooms are brand new and they had Mac computers everywhere and it it looked inside like it could be a private school. And the students were all underperforming and the place was academically a mess. 
but it wasn't a mess because they didn't have textbooks or, you know, the ceilings were falling in. I'm not saying that doesn't happen anywhere, but this is just not really looking at the, at the problem. And no one's okay with a school that's falling apart. There's asbestos or there's, you know, there's no textbooks or whatever, but, but that's really not the problem. They can keep pretending that that's, that's really not the problem. And a majority of the schools that you can point to would say that there's a lack of performance. But Bernie Sanders, all he's able to do, or what he does so well, I should say, is prey upon people's envy and whip them up into a, a kind of outrage and then mobilize that for his own political purposes. And then that brings me to, and I, I probably should have pulled some from it, but I, I don't know. I'm not sure I wanted to relive it. I, I had to do a, a panel at Politicon where we discussed uh, health Medicare for all. And I started out, and there was a Bernie Sanders spokesperson there. I do not remember her name. A progressive pundit, um, Sally Cohn, and then a very liberal doctor who's like, I have an MD. And it's like, that's great, but you're also super liberal. And he was a psychiatrist, which, as I've told you before, the most liberal people in the medical profession, by the numbers, are psychiatrists. If you want people that are, you know, Jill Stein supporters, go see a shrink. Say, hey, doc, who do you vote for? Um, and then you had, uh, oh, and you had, I know him as Kane from, what's Kane's name from the WWE producer, Mark? You know what I'm talking about? That guy, he's he's a great guy. Smart dude, too. Isn't he just Kane? No, he has a real name. Glenn, Glenn uh, Jacobs. I didn't know his real name. Oh, yeah, yeah, Glenn no, Jacobs. I had no idea. Yeah, he's the mayor of, I think, Knoxville, Tennessee. First of all, he's he is enormous. You know, you see people who are seven-footers, and they tend to be kind of lanky, usually. You don't usually see seven-footers who look like they could have, uh, you know, been in Conan the Barbarian back in the day or something. Like, this, this guy is jacked still. He's a big dude. I'm just saying, it's impressive. It's, you stand next to this guy, you're like, my my heavens. And he's a libertarian. Uh, and we, we were having... It's funny, because we were trying to represent the, the reality-based view of the problems in the medical system that we have right now, or the, rather the problems in getting good care cheaply to people, are because of intrusions in the market by the government. It's because you don't have price transparency. It's because different hospitals don't have to compete with each other on price because you can't even know the price. There's all this backroom collusion with insurance companies and providers. They bash the insurance companies all the time on the left, but they forget that the providers are also you know, just taking people to the cleaners. The providers are often the, some of the worst offenders, especially in the, within the hospital system in this realm. Just doing everything that they can to squeeze every dollar out of people, especially if you want to pay out of pocket. You should be getting the best deal for paying cash up front. You should be getting the best service. I'm just saying in a market-based economy for saying, here is my credit card. Uh, instead, what you get is, oh, you don't have insurance? We're going to charge you four, five, ten times as much as we'll charge an insurance company for the person who walks in after you because of the deal we've struck with them. This is the problem. It's not that hard to understand. You know, wh why is it now that I, my iPhone is so you know, capable? And I don't even want a new iPhone because I'm like, I can't even handle all the stuff that my current iPhone can do. I feel like my iPhone can, you know, recite poetry to me while it gives me a back rub. I just need to learn how to make my iPhone do that. Perhaps while it draws me a warm bubble bath. Um, I'm sure the iPhone probably has an app for that, but I don't know how to do it. 
But why is it so sophisticated and getting so much cheaper all the time? Because of market forces. You know, I, uh, you know I've gone through the process of, of moving many times, far too many times. Why is it that when you have, if you come and you get movers to give you an estimate, yeah, once you're, you know, once they've given you that estimate, and usually they'll go a little bit over with movers, but and you got to give them a big tip, but those guys work hard. I'm always, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, tip well. It's, it's never, you're never going to be out of money. You're never going to be broke because you tipped people well for the services they give you. I just, maybe I'm wrong economically, but I'm a big believer in you tip people well always. And, uh, you know, movers, it's standard in New York City, at least movers get 20%, which is big. But why is it that when you, when you have movers come, they don't just say, yeah, we'll move you. It's going to cost $50,000. Well, if there was only one moving company and you really needed movers, they could do that. And you'd be paying a whole lot of money for a move. Why is it they'll show up and say, no, it'll be two or $3,000 to move you? Because there's another moving company that they know you can call and they're also going to compete on price. Now, there isn't going to be a moving company that shows up and says, hey, we'll do this for you for $100 because they have guys that they have to pay and they have bills and they have costs and insurance and expenses. So this is how a price gets set. But it benefits everybody because the price will cover the interest, the cost, the needs of the company providing the service, but also because there's competition in doing that. It will allow the person who is purchasing the service to get the benefit of that competition because they, you know, everybody wants that business. This is how a market sets a price. When you go in and you say, I know I've got a, you know, my toe is, has turned blue and I think it's broken or something. I broke my big toe a long time ago. That wasn't fun. Uh, You you can't say to them, hey, what's this going to cost? They can't even tell you. They don't know and they can't tell you at a hospital in New York. So and then and then what happens is they figure out, well, how can we extract the most money from this person possible? And it's either going to be setting an outrageous out of pocket cost for you or just trying to take as much from your insurance company. And then the insurance company fights with them. But this is nonsense. This is the fundamental problem that we have and that we don't have insurance. What we have is cross subsidized care all the time. We already have 50% of healthcare spending that the federal government's already doing. We're almost a socialist healthcare system in many ways, not entirely, but in many ways already. And they say, what's your plan? I say, well, my plan would be let people buy an insurance, health insurance, the way they buy any other kind of insurance, have absolute transparency in pricing and have it mandatory. What is this going to cost? Because... One of the reasons insurance companies and providers, especially hospital networks, can get away with what they do is nobody knows what it costs at this place or that place. So the market can't function. And they do this on purpose because it gives them more price setting power. And they would say to you, well, Buck, if we couldn't do that, though, we'd go bankrupt because Medicare and Medicaid, where the government sets the price, does not cover the cost of the procedures, forces them to operate at a loss. Again, price is central here. They do not operate a world of prices. And I've just got to tell you, the stuff that was being said from the liberals, you know, the liberal doctor and then the two liberal ladies on the stage uh, about how the Bernie Sanders health care plan is going to function. It was just fantasy land stuff. I, I, I sit here and I still think to, I think to myself, they really believe that 
if we just eliminate all all private health insurance, just basically throw the insurers out, have the government standing there, but keep the rest of the system as it is with the government setting all prices. They don't think that that's going to be a disaster, disastrous, disastrous in terms of your ability to get the care you want, disastrous in terms of your uh, wait times, in terms of the cost to the American taxpayer. Everything we have seen in history tells us that this would be catastrophically expensive and deeply dysfunctional. But the Sandernistas, even Democrats realize this is crazy, but the Sandernistas run around saying, oh, no, this is great. And if you don't want it, it's because you're like a tool of the rich. <sighs> I mean, it's my friends. One of the issues dealing with Medicare for all is it's hard to argue with crazy. Crazy is not an easy debate opponent. But no... He didn't succeed in his mission because there was inadequate transparency to the American people on whose behalf he was investigating. And when I say inadequate, I mean in two different ways, both in the way in which his report was spun, massaged, and in my view, misconstrued by the attorney general, and in a w the way in which it was physically prevent presented, made it impossible for the American people to have access to it. Comey's just delusional. He was at Politicon as well. I didn't get a chance to see him. All, you know, six foot 11 of him. I, I didn't get a chance to see him, I mean, which wouldn't be helpful anyway. I mean, I, I have just no, I just don't think he's a, a figure worthy of respect or, or engagement. Uh, I've also never met, I loved all those stories from the media back in the day about how people in the FBI were crying when Comey was fired. I really mean this. I have never met a human being who worked with James Comey or knows James Comey who likes him. And I've met a lot of people who worked with him or know him, never met one who liked him. Now, I'm not saying that there's nobody out there who likes him. Clearly, Patrick Fitzgerald, who's also a very scummy guy, likes him. But I've never met anybody who's like, yeah, he's great. Really solid dude. Nobody says it about him. Yet he's running around telling us, and I'm serious, he said this at Politicon, if Trump wins, he's moving to New Zealand. One can only hope. James Comey, one can only hope. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, here I am trying to tell you guys about the Bernie Sanders plan for your health care, which is also really the Elizabeth Warren plan for your health care, which is incorrectly termed Medicare for all. It is not Medicare. It is, in fact, uh, more expensive, more expansive than even Medicare is. Medicare is an entitlement that people pay into over their lives. Medicare is like Social Security in a sense, but for your health care. Unfortunately, and I know people don't like to hear this, most Medicare beneficiaries take out over their life cycle twice as much as they put in, which is why Medicare keeps blowing a huge hole in the deficit year in and year out. But at least there is that component of paying into it over time. And then also there is cost sharing. There are uh, plans that you can buy Medicare Advantage, for example, which is through private insurers that deal with what's not covered under Medicare. Um, but you have cost sharing states kicking money for Medicare, too. So it's not just you go to a doctor and there's never a bill. What Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and some of the other Democrats are promising is you go to the doctor or the ER, the hospital, whatever your health care situation is, you go there. There's never a bill. This is crazy. Not even Canada, for example. Hello, Canada. Not even Canada has a system that covers that much. Canada, if you want dental or vision insurance, guess what? Vision care, you have to buy private insurance or go see private practitioners. They don't cover all that. 
There are some areas where, for example, you would have to do it on your own. And we know Canadians, when they want open heart surgery or there are certain procedures that they'll leave Canada and come to America for. It's true of the National Health Service in the UK as well. I don't want to be the one who has to say this, but you see some European countries, Americans generally have better dental care. I'm just going to say it. It's still true. I think it was the Simpsons that one had the, the British book of bad smiles or something. They had this whole thing about because dental care in European countries is generally not all European countries, but in some of the major ones where there's socialist health care. Uh, it's not as good as this here in America. Why? Because the market matters, my friends. How many of you would think that it would be easy to get a gr- get really excellent uh, people have LASIK surgery, for example? Will, will Medicare for all cover your LASIK? And is that just the way it's going to be? Everyone's going to have a surgery that, that runs thousands and thousands of dollars that's elective. Well, it's a great surgery and a lot of people have had it. No one really answers any of these questions. They don't even know how they're going to pay for this. Elizabeth Warren's like, I, I, ha- I have a plan for this. I-, I have a plan. We ask, well, what's the plan to pay for this? She goes, oh, oh, well, you know, when your daddy always says two toads jumping around the back of a barn turns into a, a ham sandwich. I, I don't know how that happens, but you know, it's one of these Elizabeth Warren truth-telling moments. <laughs> She just, like, makes up how folksy she is. She's so folksy. I'm just waiting for Elizabeth Warren one day to show up and pull out a banjo and just be like, hey, everybody, I come from Oklahoma. I went to all these fancy schools as a fake Native American, but I'm just one of you. And the rich want to take everything away from you. Do-do-do, playing the banjo. Uh... Elizabeth Warren is for Medicare for all. Bernie Sanders is Medicare for all. You have all these different uh, Democrats who pretend that this is going to work. And the problem is there are a lot of very ignorant people out there who don't understand. Forget, I mean, th- th- there's two ways to attack why a Medicare for all. I mean, br- I mean, in the broadest sense, the history of central planning and socialism and then the mechanisms of central planning and socialism. Now, on the history side, what you'll get into is often what I think you could call the Venezuela versus Venezuela versus uh, Sweden debate. We say, look at Venezuela. They say, well, look at Sweden, even though Sweden actually is was getting much poorer, the more socialist it got. And then it turned around, and became much more free market. It does have very high taxes and a large social welfare state. But most Swedes, by the way, are happy living a very boxed in middle class lifestyle. A lot of Americans would like the opportunity to grow wealth over time and leave their children better than they were. Swedes aren't leaving their children better than they were. They're leaving their children the same way they were. That's the plan. We have a different approach to life. We have a more aspirational vision for our day-to-day. The Swedes just don't have that. Venezuela, the vision would be, can we have bread on the shelves and clean water to drink and not be living in this dystopian nightmare brought on by the desire of the central government in Venezuela and Caracas to institute all kinds of economic reforms based in, rooted in social justice, rooted in socialism. So that, that's one. But the, the history of what has happened so far is illustrative of the problem, but only if you're willing to be honest about it. Then you just have the, the, the mechanisms of it. Why? Who will set the price for your surgery under Medicare for all? Who will determine what doctors you can see under Medicare for all? And who tells you that there will not be restrictions placed 
does not understand how the world works. There are some doctors who have great reputations and work for facilities that are renowned. There are some doctors who went to medical school in the South Pacific somewhere in a place no one's ever heard of. And I would not personally choose to go under the knife with them wielding it. It's not hard in the Internet era to figure out who is who. Guess what? People are all going to want to go to the best surgeon. Who determines whether you go to the best surgeon or not? It's not going to be the market price. It's going to be the government. How long will that wait time be? In fact, I the, the best uh, place to get sports medicine surgery done here in New York City is called HSS, the Hospital for Special Surgery. And I remember when I was thinking about having a major surgery there on my uh, ankle, which I never did, which some of you have noticed who have met me, I kind of, not really limp, but I kind of have an uneven gait. I walk a little strangely because of the blown out tendons in my right foot. I mean, don't worry, I could still like crush libs and everything, but I do have a, you know, like everybody, I've got a little bit of an issue. We've all got stuff. But I remember looking at the different hospitals, there was one guy of all the surgeons at the hospital for special surgery, what they're doing there is surgeries. There was one guy who at that time would have taken my insurance and the wait, this is private insurance, and the wait to see him was, I think, six, maybe nine months. There was only one surgeon on staff. The rest of them didn't take my insurance. In fact, a lot of them didn't take any insurance. So you would have, the only way you could see them is either you pay out of pocket or you have out of network benefits, which is always a whole, I mean, you know, good luck with that. But that already exists here in here. Imagine if now, instead of that system, what you have was just everyone, everyone's the same. Everyone gets the same. The government sends the check. So who determines who gets to see what doctor? Well, Get ready to wait a very long time. And then when the costs start going up and up and up, because people are going to want to see the best doctors, they don't want the best care, how are they going to limit those costs so they don't just completely destroy the economy? Rationing. This is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. It happens right now. I had people come up to me after this debate who were from the, uh, v- who had dealt with the VA system. They said some people in the, v- you know, some VA facilities are pretty good, some are terrible, but by and large, it's not really working the way it's supposed to work. And I bring this up just because, uh, well, because we're talking about healthcare. but 50% of millennials, according to Axios today, and 51% of Generation Z have a somewhat or very unfavorable view of capitalism. And 70% of millennials say that they would vote for a socialist. 70% of millennials say they would vote for a socialist. I mean, that's just, it's just stunning. It's stunning. And and there's such a lack of, I mean, I, I really feel like it's a lack of gratitude um, for what capitalism has done for so many of us. I mean, this system, oh, and this is, the, this is another one that came out of this survey. One in three millennials sees communism favorably. Now we start getting the definitional separation between communism and socialism. Socialism is a system of central planning with the redistribution of wealth at the, gov- at the hands of the government. Communism involves a, a revolutionary elite seizing or taking power in some capacity and then instituting a radical form of across the board pure socialism where the government controls the means of production as well as the means of distribution. And there's a central committee or a central party in charge of all of this so there's it's, it's non non-democratic it's just the people in charge of the people in charge 
And it's a dictatorship of committee. In some cases, it just becomes a dictatorship of one, as we've seen in plenty of communist countries around the world. One in three millennials have a, a, a favorable view of communism. I have to wonder, if this is the case, is it because they're too stupid to know what communism is? Is that Does that make me feel better? Or is it preferable that they know what communism is, but are so deluded that they think that it just wasn't done the right way? That's always the excuse. It wasn't done the right way. There's a good way to do communism. I would like to know. Where is communism? You know, it's one thing to say socialism everywhere has been tried has failed. It's true, but they'll cover it up with saying, oh, but look at this socialist country or that socialist program that hasn't destroyed everything. Well, it doesn't destroy everything, but it hasn't been a good idea. Name the place where communism has been tried and has not failed. I mean, other than CNN. But like name a place where it's really been the government, the governing system that hasn't resulted in, in economic uh, deprivation and catastrophe. It, it doesn't exist. We don't, we don't learn the lesson. We don't learn the lesson. I mean, Bernie Sanders should not be taken seriously as a political candidate by anybody who knows history or economics. And yet he's number two, I think, right now in most of the polls, or three. He's top three for sure. And Elizabeth Warren is really Bernie Sanders just with a little bit less craziness. That doesn't make me feel good about things. That doesn't make me think that the future of this country is going to be particularly bright if either of those candidates were to become the next president of the United States, which then, of course, brings us to Joe Biden, great hope of the Democrats still to this day. I don't understand how he's been able to cling to this this lead in the polls, although it's evaporated and Warren is beating him in some places. But the fact that he is still probably to be considered in a polling sense, the front runner, even though his money situation has gotten very tight. Uh Joe Biden tells us a lot about the Democratic Party today versus where it was before. It's clearly gone further to the left, which is why Biden has been abandoning a lot of his more centrist positions of the past in order to be more far left. But Biden's got bigger problems even than just his positioning on issues. The Democratic Party has had Jack Kennedy, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. This is your third run for president. Why Joe Biden? Well, because I think, as I said, there uh, we need somebody who on day one knows exactly what to do, can command the world stage. No one wonders whether I know a great deal about these issues in foreign policy and domestic policy. They're things I've done. And that might be one of the criticisms, too, that you're offering essentially four more years of a Obama-like administration. <laughs> Well, let me tell you something. I, uh, I, uh, um, I, I love the fact that all of a sudden the Democratic Party doesn't think uh, Obama was that great a president. Um, I, I find that fascinating. Some have asked, why hasn't President Obama endorsed you? You guys served together for eight years. Because I have to earn, I want to earn this on my own. Did he offer to endorse you? No, we didn't even get there. I asked him not to. He said, okay. I think it's better. I think he thinks it's better for me. I have no doubt when I'm the nominee, he'll be out in the campaign trail for me. Does anyone believe that? Well, actually, can we start with the no one, his quote, that no one worries whether or, or questions whether he knows a lot about all this stuff. I, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here raising my hand. I question whether he knows a lot about anything other than playing golf and charging too much money for speeches and letting his uh, his son make a lot of money because he's related to the vice president. I, I don't know what Joe Biden thinks he knows a lot about, but I've never seen any evidence of it. Going back to that line from uh, Reagan's, I think it was from Reagan's diary that he was a, a pure demagogue. 
a politician. Joe Biden was a politician and all is a politician in all the worst ways that one thinks of that term. Just says whatever he has to say whenever he has to say it. But the lack of an Obama endorsement, I, I, I think that this is particularly interesting. His claim that, oh, he would be endorsed by Obama. Oh, he he totally would be endorsed by Obama. But he didn't want that. He didn't want to be endorsed by Barack Obama. Hmm. Um, I'm just going to let you make your own determination as to whether you think that that's accurate or not. I think that it's pretty clear, pretty clear to me at least, that no serious person would believe that. And not even just that, that Obama was unwilling when Biden was getting trashed by Kamala Harris, who's had a deeply disappointing for a lot of media libs. Uh, out there, deeply disappointing presidential run, um, but that Joe Biden was getting attacked essentially for being a racist after having been the vice president to the first black president in this country for eight years. And Obama didn't feel the need to say a word for him. O- Obama has said more in defense of the prime minister of Canada who wore blackface so many times he can't even remember than he has ever said since uh, in this election cycle in defense of Joe Biden. So Biden's got that problem. Jill Biden was asked, though, about these about the gaffes that Joe Biden has and whether they're indicative of something bigger going on here. Play clip two. You've made a number of gaffes in the debates. Um, in, in the October debate, you confused Syria with Iraq. Uh, in the September debate, you conflated Iraq and Afghanistan. When you're watching these debates, do you worry about the gaffes? No, I don't worry about the gaffes. And you know what? The American people know who Joe Biden is. I mean, if he misspeaks one word, they don't. That doesn't affect the way they're going to vote one way or the other. I've heard from people that Joe Biden is actually a very, uh, very nice person, lovely person. So I'll just say that because I have heard that from people who would know. Uh, So good for Joe Biden and making a good choice there. But. The gaffes are more than just the mistakes. It's, is this guy really, is he foggy upstairs? That's really what people are getting at. And as I've said, liberals open the door to this with all their Trump is crazy, 25th Amendment. Trump is mentally mentally ill, 25th Amendment. Um, Joe Biden is old, it seems old, and does not seem like he has a full command of He's doing intellectual faculties all the time. Seems like sometimes he zones in and out. We're going to sign up to have this guy be president for possibly eight years. At what stage of this can we start to say that it's just narcissism for Joe Biden? Speaking of narcissism, you see that an advisor to Hillary Clinton said over the weekend that she believes that she was put on this earth to be president. I believe that that is true of Hillary Clinton, that she does believe that she was put on this earth to be president. I also believe that Hillary Clinton is narcissistic and kind of crazy. I think that the not being president thing has affected her in ways that we are still just figuring out now that she's speaking out publicly and that the media handlers and all this, there's not as much of an investment in perpetuating this mythology of Hillary Clinton, the brilliant tactician who you know, understands everything and understands what's going on. No. I think that people now see that Hillary Clinton was what I've known her and many of you have known her to be all along, which is a a grasping grifter who 
really just looks to advance herself and pretends to do so for some loftier principle that really has no interest in anything other than the greatness and wealth, personal wealth of, of Hillary Clinton and her immediate family. Um, but Joe Biden still still clinging to some front runner status despite his obvious limitations and just also a lack of of why. Why should it be Joe Biden? Even Joe Biden can't. Answer. I tremble for my country knowing how difficult it has become for us to stand together as a nation right now, knowing that we are living amid a crisis of belonging in the United States of America right now. We are in the midst of a crisis, Mayor Pete there says, a crisis that I think we all are supposed to believe is of Donald Trump's making. What is the Democrats' answer to this? In what way do Democrats really propose to bring us together to force us to all pay into increasingly massive government coffers? Is, is socialism really supposed to be the answer? How, how do Democrats propose to inspire us and to bring us together as one people? I, I think it's also worth noting that the differences between left and right now feel like they are reaching irreconcilable difference status, uh, that we have a level of separation in our culture, even within America, between left and right, that seems like maybe it's not all that fixable sometimes. I, I wish I could say that wasn't the case, but I do think it can be the case. But the living in a crisis line that we hear from so many Democrats, I do have to ask, when are we not hearing about a crisis from them? Everything is a crisis. I saw over the weekend there was uh, there are more of these terrible fires going on in California and Democrats. They, they make it they'll make an immediate leap online from a fire in California to uh, to climate change to Trump. It's just that's immediately something. Uh, uh, there's a big forest fire going on in California. Climate change Trump right away. That that's where it goes. It's never maybe there's a forest fire because there's a fire. Or even beyond that, maybe because they don't do enough forestry in California anymore because of environmentalists' concerns to uh, help clear out underbrush and prevent the immediate circumstances that can be much more um, likely to result in a catastrophic fire. No, everything becomes political right away. There's this immediate leap to, and not just political, but an effort to bash Trump because we are living in a state of alleged crises, and there's never any, wait a second, was that really a crisis? I just saw over the weekend again that there was a, uh, they're, they're doing stories again about polar bears drowning, I think. We're hearing about that again now. Oh, the polar bears, the ice caps are melting. You haven't heard about that for about 10 or 15 years because it didn't happen. But they kept saying it's going to happen. And now we're hearing about the, we've got 12 years or 10 years or eight years or whatever it is before we cross the point of no return. And then climate change will come for us all. I think we're getting numb to fake crises. And that worries me because we could face a real crisis as a country at some point in the future. There, there could very well come a time when there's something that all of us would have to admit is a crisis. Um, I do worry, for example, about the future of the U.S. confronting China. China's got a much larger population. It has a much more clear, I believe, strategic plan in mind to take down the United States. 
And here's, for example, this is what this is still what what Joe Biden, not to bring this back to Biden, but producer Mark, would you please play uh, clip uh, four? Here's the deal. Everybody talks about Biden says that China, if we do, we have to do China's not a problem. Look, China's in real trouble, man. I spent a lot of time with Xi Jinping. I spent more time with them than any world leader before I left. Yeah, China's the one that's got all the problems. Joe Biden had also said that China is not a problem in the past, and he's not backing away from that still. That's the strategic strategic leadership that you want to be in place? The guy who can't see the rise of China as a threat? I mean, that's a crisis. The opioids in this country are a crisis. I think what's happening in Mexico right now is at least the early indicators of a possible real crisis on our southern border after that takeover of a city by cartel members in Culiacan after they had seized Ovidio Guzman, the son of El Chapo Guzman. And just, and the president, uh, Lopez Obrador, decided that he would be released. That's scary stuff, right? I mean, we're talking about a crisis. There's real crises out there. And the focus on the from the left on fake crises, and I really will come I mean, the climate change is a fake crisis. It's just not a crisis. We can sit around and talk about this all day. It's not a crisis. Uh, but the focus on this takes away not only energy and resources from real problems, but it makes the discussion. So there's so much noise. There's so much overheated, nonsensical rhetoric about things that for people that are trying to live their lives and just do what they need to do, I'm sure it can feel like, how do I tell one crisis from another? And maybe we should just have other people be in charge of all this stuff. Maybe I should vote for the people that promise that the government's going to make all the crises go away. Government creates some of the crises we're facing. The government makes some of them worse. But we are, like the debt. They want to talk about a crisis? No one cares anymore. I came into conservative media when the Tea Party was, was basically at its, well, a year after it was really at its absolute height. The Tea Party was such a powerful force. And people were very concerned and talking about the debt. None of that has changed, except it's gotten a lot worse. All of the arguments, all the things that were being said then about what would happen are still very much applicable today. The only real difference, the only real distinction is that we are much deeper in debt now than we were in 2010. And we're not hearing anybody talk about it. And, you know, it's, it's a shame. I think right now in conservative media, if you did a... And many people who have radio shows and TV shows, they're obsessed with the ratings all the time. So they look at every segment and everything that happens and they'll say whatever, whatever does well, they'll just say more of. And whatever doesn't do well, it doesn't matter what they think. They won't say that. There are a lot of hosts out there. That's how they run their shows. And I'm pretty sure right now, if you talk about the debt, people just go, meh, don't care. That feels very strange because 10 years ago, if you're talking about the debt when it was much less than it is now, People were worried about the future of this country. They thought it was an existential threat to our economy and therefore the American way of life and the American experiment. That's all gone away. So, you know, Pete, Mayor Pete's talking about a crisis that doesn't exist. Meanwhile, a crisis, crises that do exist feel like they're getting larger and, and worse around us. And we can't even agree on what's a crisis as a country. So how can we even begin to think that there will be the basis for real action about any of this when we can't even decide what requires action? That's my my concern for us going forward. That's where I think we've started to really run into some issues. Uh, we are going to, and issues that are only going to get worse. But with that, my friends, it's all going to be fine. Just keep listening to the Buck Sexton Show and tell some friends about us they listen to.
Roll Call's up. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton for Roll Call Time or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. Again, thanks to all Team Buck who came out to Nashville to Politicon over the weekend. Great to see you. Enjoyed taking the selfies and hanging out. It was a lot of fun. Uh, went to Martin's Barbecue. That place is great. Oh, the brisket was so good. The brisket was just... That's my, I mean, that's my favorite of the barbecue meats, the brisket, when it's done the right way. Uh, but so much barbecue. The problem I have when I go to a really good barbecue place, same thing with Hard Eight in Dallas, or the problem with uh, with the best barbecue places I've been to is I, I always want to eat more, you know. And uh, you can really only handle so much of that stuff before you've really you got to tap out. And um, producer Mark, uh, did you are you up on the baseball stuff, the, the World Series that is apparently happening right now? Is there anything of note for our audience you want to share? What do you mean of note? Like. Is this a good World Series? I've, I've seen some people complaining that last uh, night's game was boring. It's been a bad boring. one. Yeah. The last but I just two, said it's been 8-1 and then 7-1. Of course it's boring. It's baseball, folks. No. What do you expect? Actually, surprisingly, it has been the lowest rated World Series in a long time. Uh, no? Yeah. It doesn't surprise me at all. You know, if you want to spend nine hours drinking, looking at something from afar, just go hang out by the train track somewhere. It'll be free. What baseball game are you going to that takes nine hours? I don't know. Baseball takes forever, man. It it's, doesn't. It takes the same amount of time as a football or hockey game, except there's not as much happening. Except football's amazing. Says the person who doesn't know who Saquon Barkley is. Well, I mean, it's a busy year, man. We're launching uh-huh. the show in here. Yeah, sure. All right, let's get to Facebook. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, this one comes from Douglas. Buck, does this sound like CNN? News aimed to have effect on the broad masses... Concentration on a few points, constant repetition of those points, framing of the issues is indisputable, one-sided. I bet you know where that's from. I'll tell you if not. Um, uh, no, I mean, is this like propaganda from World War II or something? I, I don't know what that is. But let me know, Douglas, when you write in again. Uh, but yeah, it just sounds like a definition of propaganda, which CNN certainly is. But is that Jeff right? Shields, hi, Buck. Just listened to a podcast from last week regarding Hillary and something came to mind. You may have already mentioned this, but I don't recall hearing it in the media. Uh, The next time we're lectured about why the Electoral College should be removed and the popular vote should be implemented, please remind them that Hillary beat Obama in the popular vote during the 2008 Democratic primary, and the majority of them had no issue with Obama being the nominee. Um, I got to take your word for that because I actually don't remember if that's true or not. But if that's true, that's a very... A very interesting, uh, very interesting point. Um, let's see here. Linda writes, hey, I was watching Pluto TV, the first in Hawaii, and there you are. I'm intrigued. Don't know much about Apple Pod, but we'll look around. You sound like a man with a mind. I'm coming from a grandma. You're kind of hot. Best wishes, Linda. Thanks, Linda. I'll take it. I'll take it. You know, take it where I can get it. Sounds good to me. Don't no, producer Mark. No, no, we don't. We don't need to hear. I it. wasn't coming over to say anything. But okay. I have so many comments. All on right. That. Just hit, so many. Got to hit the mute button on producer Mark <laughs> over here right now. He, you're busy. Make sure the podcast goes out with all the cool things that you, the social media things you do. 
Do those things, well, please. Well, people on social media love when I mock you. So. Well, there's that true. That, that too, or true, both of those things. James, I think the left is on a mission to destroy this country for their own personal beliefs. Anything the Bible says is right, they will say is wrong. James, I'll just leave that to you, my friend. Uh, let's see here. Rick writes, Buck, I'm a longtime listener who just upgraded to Mac operating system Catalina. It's a long story, but Catalina makes moving podcasts on my iPod very cumbersome. Is there a location or a way to download your show as an MP3 file? This would simplify copying them onto my iPod. Uh, Bruce or Mark? I don't know. I'm not 100% sure, but I feel like if you go on bucksexton.com, you might be able to download it. Okay. I could double check on that, though. Yeah. I mean, let's say that that's, uh, we'll try that and see if that works, because I have no idea. So we'll just go with whatever Bruce or Mark says. It certainly works for me. Douglas, can you give me an example of an agreement that is not quid pro quo? Uh, okay. I mean, well, Douglas, yeah, sure. Like if I if I agree to write your son a recommendation for college and I do that, that's not a, and that's not a quid pro quo. Right? So that's there you go. There's an example of what's not a quid pro quo. If I do that, though, and of your own accord, you send me a gift on my birthday, which is right around Christmas time, that's still not a quid pro quo. But if you say, hey, Buck, write my son a letter of recommendation for all right, you guys know, you don't have to go through the rest of it. You get it. Philip writes, I'm guessing this. Well, this is a photo of a giant trailer that says Team Buck on it. And he wrote, I guess, I'm guessing this was not you doing an outside broadcast in Montana today. Yeah, that is not that was not the Team Buck mobile, but that's pretty that's pretty badass, actually. I gotta say. I'll say producer, oh, producer Mark can see this photo in the inbox. It's pretty legit. Well done with the Team Buck Montana, whatever that is. I'm assuming it's related to horses or something. John. If you're still in Nashville and anyone anywhere near Morton Steakhouse, I'll buy you a mezcal. John, thank you for the offer, my friend. Unfortunately, I am back in New York City. I am not in Nashville. Nashville was a great town. I want to go. I want to go back. Uh, I want to go back and check it out for sure for fun. Um, all right, here we go. Mark writes, "Hey, Buck. Last Friday, a young person wrote into roll call asking why raising the minimum wage would be bad. I'll tell you why. I'm scared of it being raised." I'm 16 years old, and I work at a feed store loading bags of animal feed into cars and stocking the warehouse. I get paid $7.50 an hour for what I do. If they raise the minimum wage to $10, I wouldn't be useful to the company anymore. I'd be let go because there's a limit to how much people are going to pay for each job. So in order to get our wages to go up, we should work hard and work our way up the line government regulation won't help us we'd lose our jobs and the price for everything would go up if we raise it thanks team whoa whoa mark uh mark that's a very good explanation of why raising the minimum wage is just not the panacea it's a fun word to say isn't it panacea that everybody says it is uh let's see next up here we have scott Scott writes, hey, Buck, longtime listener, great admirer. Am I alone in thinking the Drudge Report has swung wildly anti-Trump since the impeachment farce shifted into fifth gear? 
Love to hear your analysis on this and whether an imag- I'm imagining or not, whether Drudge has flipped or if it's just playing the if Trump is impeached, the Democrats lose big in 2020 game. Appreciative Scott from New Hampshire. Scott, I have noticed a little bit of uh, a saltiness from the Drudge Report in its in its uh, approach to Trump. There's something going on there. Maybe Maybe Drudge, who is one of the most secretive but also influential people in conservative media still to this day. Maybe he feels like Trump just isn't following through on stuff. He needs to follow through on. Maybe some of the promises, you know, are, are maybe he's had enough. Uh, Ronnie writes, Buck, you have to have dinner in Nashville at Rodizio Brazilian Grill just off Broadway. Almost any kind of meat. We were just there a couple weeks ago. Have fun. Well, Ronnie, next time I'll definitely check it out. I will say one night on Saturday night, we went out somewhere on Broadway and I don't want to name it because I know it's it's a new place that just opened. The food, the food was not that good. But that was our fault because we went somewhere for the live music and and not for the uh, – I didn't really do my usual deep dive on whether the food would be any good. Uh, folks, that's going to be the show for today. As I always say, please do tell somebody this week about the Buck Sexton Show. Tell them they can download it for free on iTunes uh, or wherever they listen to podcasts, the iHeart app, for example. We are going to have an amazing week of shows for you because we always do, and that's just how we roll. So I'll be back here tomorrow, same time, same place. Remember, channel 248 on Pluto if you're listening to the podcast. Just download Pluto TV. See you. Talk to you tomorrow. Shields high.